Well, turn with me, if you have your Bible, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I know you may be thinking, well, brother, you preached on three last week and four comes next. And I, I did understand that. But I think the concepts that we have talked about in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 are sort of summarized in chapter 4. So we're going to go ahead today and look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read that to you. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Pray with me. Lord, we're getting to a, uh, a chapter of this letter where Paul um, has to correct the church. And Lord, uh, not many of us like being corrected, but we need to see... Um, Lord, the Proverbs say, uh, smite a scorner and the simple will learn. So, Father, I pray that, uh, that the correction that Paul had to do for this Corinthian church, Lord, that we will learn the principles and that we will be able to apply the principles if we are called on to do so. So, Lord, help us to understand this. Father, I pray that you would teach this morning. Uh, Lord, I had the privilege of, of dwelling on this, meditating on the scripture and looking at it all week. Uh, but, Father, your, uh, your teaching is what we need. And, Father, the, not only your teaching, but your uh, imparting to the heart of the listener. So, Lord, uh, we pray that you would be honored in what we say and, and how we treat your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Now, um, I'm glad we had such an uplifting song service because this is not a particularly uplifting sermon. <laughs> now, the reason for that is it's not a particularly uplifting part of the letter. And uh, my job is to tell you what this says, right? So, um, I heard a story the other day of a guy who was playing in, a, in the street as a kid. He was riding his bike in the street with a friend of his, and his mom came out and fussed at him. And you know, it's embarrassing to get fussed at any time, but especially if you're a teenage boy and you're in front of one of your peers. 
So uh, after the mother fussed at him, she said, now you know that the only reason I'm telling you not to play in the street is because I love you and I don't want anything to happen to you. And he's like, yeah, I know, Ma. And then his mom went back in, and his buddy was over there kind of sniffling like he was, he was going to cry. And the dude said, man, I'm the one that got in trouble. What's wrong with you? And he said, well, my mama lets me play in the street. <laughs> you know? So he was thinking, well, my mama doesn't love me. So the correction that Paul gives is because he does love these saints in Corinth. And so he's going to offer this correction. It is very timely, though. Uh, I didn't jump here in order to talk about what's going on in the SBC, uh, but this is something that we need to look at in light of those reports. I don't want to assume that you guys have heard what the Houston Chronicle story was about, although I imagine a lot of you have. So allow me to read a few excerpts from that story so we'll all be on the same page. This was reported again in the Houston Chronicle just a few weeks ago. In all, since 1998, roughly 380 Southern Baptist church leaders and volunteers have faced allegations of sexual misconduct. They left behind more than 700 victims, many of them shunned by their churches, left to themselves to rebuild their lives. Some were urged to forgive their abusers or even to get abortions. About 220 offenders have been convicted or took plea deals, and dozens of cases are still pending. They were pastors, ministers, youth pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, and church volunteers. At least 35 church pastors, employees, and volunteers who exhibited predatory behavior were still able to find jobs at churches during the past two decades. In some cases, church leaders apparently failed to alert law enforcement about complaints or to warn other congregations about allegations of misconduct. That is a shame uh, for us, and so we need to be honest enough to talk about it in a candid way. Now, when I heard this, I thought maybe it was more of a younger man's problem. I mean, you can see how when you get uh, maybe a college student to come in and teach the youth, you can say, well, you got some senior high girls there and a a guy in college. I can see how there might be something inappropriate going on there. And I'm sure that is part of it, but that's not all of it. In the last uh, church where I came from, I know this is hard to believe, but we had two men uh, arrested for child molestation in our little church. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, 150 people, probably, that were showing up on a Sunday morning. Both of those men were in their late 60s or 70s. So this is not just a younger man's problem. And it's certainly not just a recent problem. <laughs> we see that 2,000 years ago, they were dealing with sexual immorality. And uh, the other day, Brother Robert mentioned something that he had heard about when he was a younger man. Uh, of this same kind of nature. So this isn't new, uh, but it's newly exposed as a problem among Southern Baptist churches. So let me ask you, uh, when should a church talk about issues of church discipline? I am convinced the time to talk about that kind of thing is not when we have to act on that kind of thing. We need to get our thinking correct now so that if we have to deal with something later, we'll be able to deal with it. So, I'm not bringing this up because we have a problem in this church. I'm bringing this up because as long as there are lost men and women 
in the world and even save men and women in, in the world, uh, there's going to be abuse and corruption. And so we need to learn to think correctly so that when called upon, we'll be able to act correctly. We need to learn how to think rightly on this matter. And it's something that we used to do. Um, Southern Baptist churches used to take church discipline very seriously back when the Southern Baptist Convention was growing and outpacing by far the population. Uh, there, it's only a very rare church that takes it seriously now. And we see that we are not growing nearly as fast as the population. I think there may be a correlation there. So church discipline is commanded in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, It is actually reported. You can hear the consternation in Paul. <laughs> he can't believe this. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, first of all, what, what do you think is meant by his father's wife? I'm almost certain that that means his stepmother. If it had meant his mother, Paul would have just said his mother. So this is a man that is in a relationship, a physical, sinful relationship with his stepmother. And then notice the phrase, of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. So the church had lowered their standards of conduct to the world's standards and then had gone even lower than the world's standards. I don't know if that's actually possible for us today, but it's, it's a horrible principle to try to do. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. And I don't think these Corinthians understood this. Paul is not at all ambiguous in what he is saying that this church should do. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, he doesn't say, let's pray about it. He doesn't say, well, how much money does this brother give? He doesn't ask who his friends are and who might be offended if he gets put out of the church. He doesn't ask any of that stuff. He says, this needs done, and it needs done the next time you assemble together. So why is church discipline commanded in Scripture? Well, we don't have to know why necessarily because we just do what we're told, right? God says jump and we jump while we read and figure out how high, right? We just do what we're told to do. But he does tell us why church discipline is necessary and good for the church. Number one, it's for the sake of the wayward brothers or sisters' soul. Verse 3 says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, the first thing we need to talk about is whether it's okay for a pastor to decree that somebody needs to be uh, under church discipline. Paul did it here, but Paul's an apostle, right? <laughs> a little different, a little different than, a, than a pastor uh, of a local church. So it's okay for Paul to say single-handedly, hey, you guys got to take care of this. 
Uh, but for us, we need to address these things as a church if a problem ever gets to that point. Thankfully, we have some pretty clear instructions. And what I mean by this is if it were just left up to an individual, uh, a, a deacon or a pastor to say somebody needs to be under church discipline, then I think we could see how that could become an abusive situation. Um, you know, if, if one of the deacons said something cross to me one day, I could say, huh, you know, that guy's got a contentious spirit. You know, I, I really think we need to deal with him. We need to have some church discipline going on. And we don't, we don't want that kind of thing. You never want one person deciding that somebody should be involved uh, in, in a church-wide discipline action. But we have good instructions in the book of Matthew. We find this. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is key stuff right there. Every charge must be established by the witness of two or three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So to recap those steps... What Matthew 18 tells us to do is if someone does offend us, first of all, other parts of Scripture tell us to overlook an offense is a wonderful thing, and it's an honoring to God. But if there's something that we can't overlook because uh, it's, it's harmful to the body or because it's one of those sins that we'll see in a minute in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that Paul says are big public sins, then we need to go to that brother individually and say, hey, I see you're going down the wrong road here, and I love you and I'm concerned about you, so I want to call you back onto the, onto the right path. Then, if he doesn't listen to you, then you take two or three people with you. And the two or three people go, and they say to this brother or sister, hey, we, we want you to realize what's going on here. We love you. We care about you. We're concerned for you. We're concerned for the unity of our church, and we want to ask you, uh, to, to look at this and repent and get back in line here. Then if he won't listen to them, then you go to the church, and the church makes another appeal. Do you see the point of this? The point of this is to reconcile that brother or sister back to uh, good standing, back to the faith to get them to repent of whatever they're doing and call them back. But then if they won't even listen to the whole church, then you are to put them out and treat them like a tax collector or meaning to disfellowship them. If the Corinthian church were not composed of infants in Christ like we saw last week, then they would have already handled this. But since they had not handled this, Paul had to step in and tell them what to do. In, back in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4, it says, When you, and uh, again that's that wonderful plural you in Greek, so he says, when y'all are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So again, the point is to bring the brother back in, not to lay the hammer down on somebody, not to, make, not to ruin somebody's life, but to call them back into fellowship. 
So let me ask you, how exactly is it helpful to the brother to be kicked out of the church? Well, hopefully it will sober him up. Hopefully he'll realize, I have really messed up. I have really strayed from the way I'm supposed to go. Verse 5 says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? I don't know completely, to be honest. But let me tell you, um, this is an unusual expression that I think is only used one other time in Scripture, and that is in 1 Timothy 1.20. So I'm not exactly sure what it means because we only have these two cases where it's mentioned in Scripture. But in the Tyndale New Testament commentary on 1 Corinthians, Leon Morris writes this, He said, whatever else it means, it seems to include excommunication. The idea underlying this is that outside of the church is the sphere of Satan. To be expelled from the church accordingly is to be delivered over into that region where Satan holds sway. It is a very forcible expression for the loss of all Christian privileges. Now let me ask you, will that work today? Um, Well, it won't work every time today because one thing that folks will do today is they'll say, okay, if you want to call me out on my sin and want to disfellowship me, you know what I'll do? I'll go a mile in any direction (laughs) to another church, right? That wasn't an option for them in Corinth, but we're not supposed to follow Scripture when it's always the most pragmatic thing to do. We're supposed to follow Scripture, period, right? But let me tell you, it does sometimes work exactly as intended. Um, A pastor friend of mine had a a, a situation in his church where the guy was a drunkard. And I don't mean he was seen one time somewhere drinking. I mean the guy would get drunk and publicly drunk and uh, to the point that everybody around knew that this guy was a drunk. Okay, It was reflecting badly on the church. It was reflecting badly on the name of Christ. So they did exactly what Matthew tells them to do. They went and, well, one guy went, (coughs) the pastor in this case, and said, hey, brother, um, this has become a problem. We need to get you some help, and you need to repent of this situation. He didn't do it. So they took two or three folks, and they went to him, and they made that same appeal. And guess what? He didn't do it. So then, after giving him a little time, They went to the church and they said, guys, we don't want to do this, but the clear teaching of Scripture is that we need to address this as a body. So they did, and uh, this guy was unwilling to repent, so they disfellowshipped him. They, They excommunicated him. They threw him out of the church. Well, that finally did it. He finally realized, oh, okay, this is not a problem with one or two guys. This really is a problem. And the church takes this seriously, and they love me enough to tell me. He repented of that sin, and he came back, and he asked to be part of that church. And to this day, many years later, he is a functional, happy member of that church. So, it's great that it works, but it's the command of Scripture regardless. Even if it doesn't. Because sometimes folks aren't willing to repent, and if they're lost, they're just not going to repent. But we, however, have the same responsibility. So what happens if we deal with somebody who won't repent of sins and they say, okay, fine, you don't want me in your church? Cool, I'll go down the street and I'll go to that church. What is our responsibility there? Well, um, our responsibility is to tell that other church what the situation is. 
and then hope that they have the guts to deal with it in a godly fashion. Now, if something happens in our church that is illegal, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tell the police, okay? Um, Some of these folks in these Southern Baptist churches didn't apparently report abuse because they didn't want to bring a bad name on the church. They didn't want to bring a bad name on Christ. They didn't want to bring a bad name on the Southern Baptist Convention. But what they did was wrong because if something is illegal and needs to be reported to the police, that's exactly what we'll do. God is able to take care of his own reputation. We don't need to try to protect him there. So cover-up of sin is a huge part of the problem and never, never the solution to that problem. So church discipline is for the sake of the wayward brother's or sister's soul. There's another purpose, though, and that is for the sake of, church, of the church's purity. Verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what is he talking about, about the festival? Well, before the Passover, there were supposed to be days of preparation where the Jewish family would search the house for any leaven, and they would get rid of that leaven. They were supposed to make a diligent search for it, get all of it out of the house before the Passover. Now, what Paul is saying here is, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. So what he's saying is, guys, you are uh, pure in Christ. You are believers in Christ, therefore you have been delivered from your sin. And then he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So it's not only time to get all the leaven out, leaven here representing sin, it's past time because you were supposed to get rid of that leaven before the sacrifice ever happened. And he's saying, look, guys, get rid of the leaven. Enjoy the feast like you're supposed to because our Passover lamb, Jesus, has already been sacrificed. So now we are called to a life with no more leaven if we understand that leaven stands for sin. Now, I don't know what they were boasting about. In verse 6, it says, your boasting is not good. I don't know what they think they had to boast about. But it may have been they were boasting about what they conceived of as their freedom in Christ. You know, you explain the gospel to some people and they'll say, okay, so if, if I place my faith in Jesus, then my past sins are forgiven, my present sins are forgiven, my future sins are forgiven. So really, once I get this golden ticket, I can live however I want to, Right? Well, those are people that clearly do not understand the gospel. They've not gotten a new heart, as the, as the prophet talks about. So they may have, again, been boasting in their freedom in Christ. But again, let me tell you, freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. Now, if you don't understand that, it's very likely that you need that new heart and that renewed mind that Scripture talks about. Enabled, enabling you to understand this. You know, some people have, the, they seem to have the understanding that God is there to provide forgiveness. Um, one time in, in a former church when I went to address a, a sin that somebody was 
dealing with, and I didn't want to do this. This wasn't a fun thing for me at all. But I was the uh, worship pastor, and this lady was in the choir, and there was a thing going on that shouldn't have been going on. So I went, and it's not like it was a secret thing. It was everybody in the church knew about it. I went to the pastor, and I said, Brother, can we go address this? And he said, mm, no. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go address this, uh, okay? And he said, yeah, good luck. And so I went, and I spoke to this lady, and uh, she told me that, well, I know, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know how I'm living is wrong, but... God will have to forgive me. At which point, I stopped talking about the repentance of that sin and started sharing the gospel with her, okay? (laughs) Because I don't think she understood the fundamental nature of her relationship with God. It's very likely that somebody that doesn't understand that, that thinks, hey, freedom in Christ is licensed to sin, they could be a super immature Christian, but more likely they are not saved in the first place. That's okay, though. You get the gospel to them. So some folks think God just exists to forgive them. I mean, it's kind of what he's for, you know. We have cows out in the field who are for giving us milk. We have chickens who are for giving us eggs. And we have God who is there to give us forgiveness. (laughs) That really misunderstands our role and God's role. You know, we're here to serve him, not the other way around. Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin, guys, is like a cancer in the body. Sin in the church is like a cancer in the body. It has to be cut out. Sometimes cutting it out is a painful thing, but it has to be gotten rid of. Otherwise, it will kill our desire to read the Word. Lifeway did this study, and uh, this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, but the study said that the number one thing that causes, that, that helps spiritual growth in an individual, and the number one thing that people who are not growing spiritually lack is reading, personally reading the Word of God. So I encourage you all the time to read the Word, and that is because nothing is going to help you grow spiritually more than reading the Word. But sin in the body will kill our desire to read the Word. It will kill our desire to hear the Word genuinely preached. Now, if you want to go uh, listen to Osteen, what's his name? Joel Osteen. It probably won't kill your desire to go hear Joel, but it will kill your desire to hear real biblical preaching. It will kill our fellowship. Sometimes people think, well, we need to keep peace. You're right, we do. I pray for peace all the time. I pray for peace in this church. But the thing that will undermine and kill peace is sin that goes undealt with, unconfessed, unrepented of. It will kill the blessing of God in our church. You know, I've told you a number of times that God is just too smart to give His power and His authority to rebels. If we live in rebellion... God's not going to give us arms and supplies to carry out our rebellion. That would be crazy. It will kill our mission as well. You know, it's hard to love other people when you're obsessed with your own idolatry, which is what sin comes from, right? So if we're going to genuinely love those outside the church, it's going to be because we have maintained purity inside the church. Now, guys, if you're going, wait a minute, I'm not super pure, I sin. Well, I do too. (laughs) 
uh, all of us sin. But there is a difference between a persistent lifestyle of sin that we choose or falling into sin and going, ah, I I hate that, I I did it again, here I go, I'm going to repent again. Repentance is to be a daily thing. You know, sometimes we take the Lord's Supper and we talk about repentance before we take the Lord's Supper. I get concerned that that's sort of our uh, like quarterly repentance, though. <laughs> we don't need to have quarterly repentance. We need to have daily or maybe hourly repentance. And if we live like that, then yes, I understand there's still sin in the church. But there's not persistent, we choose this sin over choosing to follow God. That's a different matter right there. Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the one for all Passover, Jesus, has been sacrificed. We are forgiven. We are empowered to live as saints. And so Paul says, we just need to act like who we are. Often in the Word, you'll see a, a exhortation to live in the truth of what God has said about you. So it's not that he's saying you need to live in a way that you don't have the power to live. He's saying you need to live like what you are. So Paul says you are unleavened. You are saved. You are empowered. You are equipped to do what you need to do. Now just do it. Some folks today want to maintain peace above everything else. And again, peace is so important. I pray for peace all the time. But we need to recapture the concept of meaningful church membership. It's not like a country club, guys. If you join the country club, I assume, I don't know, I'm not part of it, but I assume you can go when you want to go, right? You can go there and eat if you want to go there and eat. You can go there and use the pool. You can go there and and play tennis. It's all about what they can do for you, right? Well, church membership is a different thing. We need accountability, we need fellowship, and we need support. You know, we've seen why church discipline is demanded in Scripture. So now let's see what the proper jurisdiction of church discipline is. Because we get this backwards, folks. It is for those inside the church, not outside the church. Verse 9, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, what letter? We have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, right? Well, there's another letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians we can see from reading these that we don't have. Now, why don't we have it? Because apparently God decided that we didn't need it, okay? So, I don't know why. It'd be cool to have, but (laughs) who am I to question God? So, we have two of the three letters Paul wrote. So Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. One thing that stops church discipline often 
is someone asking, who are you to judge? Folks' favorite Bible verse, (laughs) a lot of times, is judge not lest you be judged, right? Everybody knows that one. Lost folks know that one because they like that one. They don't want anybody judging them. Well, Paul is saying, hey, don't judge those outside the church. That's God's business. Let God deal with them. We are to judge those inside the church. We've already seen why. Is it to give them a hard time? Is it to run people off? Is it to make folks mad? Is it to cause division? No, it's not to do any of that. It is to call sinners back to repentance, right? We have reversed the order of Paul's instructions in this chapter regarding the jurisdiction of our judgment. Paul warns us not to judge those outside the church, but those inside, and we are often so eager to do the opposite of that. We are willing and ready to judge those outside the church. But when it comes to folks inside the church, we want to look away and have a blind eye and say, man, who am I to judge, right? We should engage the culture. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't engage the culture. We should. But we have to be known for our love and our purity and not our condemnation and our judgment. You know, I was telling you last week that, uh, again, Lifeway did this study or somebody did the study. I don't remember who it was. But they said, what do you think about church people? And they were asking unchurched people. And the number one answer was they're very judgmental. Now, what if instead they said they're very loving or they take membership in their group very seriously? That would be a way better testimony. You know, we need to deal with the culture in a way that shows our love, our genuine love. Um, Next month, we're going to have an opportunity to bless the Crisis Center, Choices Clinic. I'm sorry, they changed their name so much I can't keep up with it. It's Choices Clinic, though. We're going to have a chance to bless them because they're doing a 5K run. And uh, you may say, I don't think I can make it 5K. Well, I, don't, I don't think I could either. But we can go out there and serve water to them. We can, we can help them do what they do because this is a big fundraiser for them. And we want to bless them because they are on the front lines of protecting folks that need protection. So I want us to be there and let people see us by our love and our demonstration of love rather than thinking that we're just there to condemn them for what they do. We should be demonstrating that tangible love of Jesus to our community. How can we do that? Uh, We can, number one, do what I've been saying we need to do for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is our marching orders, the Great Commission, right? We need to reconcile the lost to God through inviting them to church and sharing the gospel with them. Now, guys, you may say, hey, I'm not... I don't feel equipped yet to share the gospel. Okay, invite them to church, and we'll keep progressing. If you say, well, uh, I, you know, I would share the gospel, but I'm just not a very outgoing person. Okay, I understand that. But pray for opportunities anyway, and share anyway. <laughs> um, I know you may not be super outgoing, but you don't have to share flamboyantly. Share with somebody quietly over a cup of coffee in your house. You just want to tell them how they can be reconciled, folks. And if you, again, I'm going to say this until you're tired of hearing me say it. If you don't know how to share your faith but you want to, I will teach you to do it. It's not really hard. Um, There are ways that you can use the scripture rather than your wonderful memory. Because if you're like me, I mean, 
I'll forget your name unless I'm married to you or you're my kid. I mean, it's bad. <laughs> I'll forget your name occasionally. Uh, so depending on your memory is not the safest thing. I can sympathize. So we can teach you a way to share the gospel where you, you are looking at the word and you're, you're showing them the word. You're letting them read it. It's not really hard and it's not really scary, regardless of what you, what you think about that. And the other way that we can show tangible love to those outside the church is we can be model citizens, uh, model neighbors, teachers, students, employers, employees. Guys, if, if you're a teacher in the public schools or in the private schools or in college, you should be the favorite teacher, right? Not because you don't demand a good work ethic, but because you genuinely love your students. If you're a student, you should work as unto the Lord when you do your studies. And your teachers should think you're the best thing ever. If you're an employer, you should be generous to those that work for you and kind to them and loving to them and faithful to them. And they should think you're the best employer ever. If you're an employee, people should think you are the model employee because, again, we Christians have that work ethic where we work as unto the Lord. And people should be able to spot us and say, man, I need 10 more of that guy. And that's, how, that's one of the ways that we can tangibly show the outside world what a believer is. The next thing is to care for the helpless. You know, James, when we, when we studied James a few weeks back, we looked at how he said genuine religion is caring for widows and orphans. Now, in Paul's day or James' day, um, these were the most helpless folks in society, were the widows and the orphans. Now, guys, still, orphans are in need of care. We need people in the foster system. We need people to adopt kids. Uh, And sometimes widows are vulnerable as well. But then there are other widows who, uh, you know, are are super wealthy and don't need anything from anybody. Uh, So it's not the same situation it was. But let me tell you who is really, really vulnerable in our culture. And that is the unborn, right? We need to be the first one to step up and to protect them. We need to be the first one to come alongside somebody like the Choices Clinic and say, we want to help you do the work that you do. That is true, genuine, faithful religion. All right, so at the end of every, uh, every sermon, I say, what do we do, right? Because I want to know how we can take what we learn and apply it to us specifically. One thing we can do is we can raise expectations. Guys, for years, for years and years, church membership has been more like that country club thing. You go to church if you feel like going to church. You tip a little bit if you feel like tipping. You know, if the music's really good, you give a little bit of money. (laughs) Um, It's more like that cruise ship that we talked about the other day rather than a battleship, right? We come to be served and not to serve. But guys, we... Uh, there's, there's not many of us. We need to get on the same page and realize that we have to raise our expectations of what being a church member is. We need to know that we're not here just to be served. We are here to be served. Uh, Jimmy blessed me singing. Bailey blessed me singing. I was blessed as I worshiped corporately with all of you. And I hope you get something out of the sermon too. So yeah, we're here to be served, but we're also here to serve to serve one another with the giftings of the Holy Spirit, but also to serve those outside our community. Guys, if, if West Laurel Baptist weren't here and that didn't change anything about Laurel, then why are we here, right? 
We need to make the community we're in better. We need to make the city we're in better because we're here. So the next thing is membership means accountability and service. And guys, we've just got to get that understanding where we know that membership is a commitment. It's not just something that we have our name written somewhere. It's that if we're a member of the church, we're actually expected to be there. We're expected to worship. We're expected to support the work of God. We're expected to engage our culture. We're, we're expected to take that message of reconciliation out to other people. Um, it's going to be kind of weird because the American church doesn't so much operate that way. But again, we can, we can be different. We can decide that membership means accountability and service. And the next thing is be willing to follow the clear teaching of Scripture, whether it's regarding church discipline or anything else, right? We, we don't look at what's pragmatic necessarily. We don't look at what has been done. We look at what the Word says. I had a friend who was a secretary in a church where I previously served, and she was not a member of our church. But she came to me and she said, my husband has run off with another woman and I don't know what to do. I said, well, let me suggest to you that you go to your pastor um, and you, you say, help me with this. And I said, have you gone to your husband and confronted him? She said, yeah. Do you want to reconcile with him? Yes, I do, desperately. I said, well, that's wonderful and generous and loving of you. So I commend you for that. Now, you've gone to this guy. So the second thing in, in Matthew 18 is take two or three people with you. And I said, go to your pastor and ask him to help you with this. She said, okay. Well, she came back and she told me, hey, I went to my pastor and he said he tried this before and it didn't work out very well. <laughs> um, at which point I said, well, you may want to go to a new church. You know, um, whether it's pragmatic or not, if it's the word of God, we do it. Because if we decide we can outguess and outthink God, we've messed up. So we need to be willing to follow the clear teaching of Scripture regardless of anything else. Unfortunately, that's kind of a rare thing, too, because this was a big old church in DeSoto County. And that guy flat out told her, I'm not going to do that because I tried it once and it didn't work out well. Well, that didn't change what Matthew uh, had written in his gospel. So we still do what we're told to do. So, guys, let's be that kind of church. We can do, we can do this. We can change the norm to be a group of people who are on mission together. And that's what I so fervently want for us. And, uh, guys, we're getting there. We're getting there slowly. Uh, there are more people that are coming now and saying, hey, I do want to learn how to share my faith. Um, I got a call from a guy yesterday who, was, who had been out of town, and he's one of our church members. And he said, I picked up a hitchhiker yesterday, and I shared the gospel with that person, and here's how I did it, and here's what happened. And that's exciting to me. I'm not saying you should go pick up hitchhikers, but I am saying we should take the opportunities to share the gospel. And so the more times I hear that we're doing that, I get so encouraged and I get so excited because if five of us can do that, that's great. Then 10 of us can do that. And if 10 of us can do that, then maybe it can spread to where 15 of us can do that. And eventually we got a church full of people on mission. Amen.